Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. One running theme we've had on this podcast is how bringing humanities and science together makes for wonderful results. Amber Case is a personification of that intersection of human and technology. Amber is a user experience designer, author, and public speaker. She has combined a deep understanding of anthropology and human behavior with a focus on user experience, basically making technology work with us and for us instead of annoying us. That's a good thing. In particular, she's the author of two great books, Calm Technology and the newest one, Designing with Sound. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I'm very excited about my guest today, Amber Case. She has an amazing background. She's a UX designer, she's a public speaker, and she's an author of multiple books, including Calm Technology and Designing with Sound, which is coming out just a couple of weeks on December 13th. Welcome to the show, Amber. Thanks. It's great to be here. Like I said, you and I were talking a little bit before. You have a fascinating background. And like I do on every show, I just want to know your story. Can you share us about how you ended up where you are now and what led you to UX design and thinking about comp technology and all these things on your side? How did you get there? What led you that direction? Sure. Well, I had a weird childhood because I grew up in Denver, Colorado, kind of in the suburbs. But my parents grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and they were kind of SLC punks. So they met at a <laughs> TV station. My dad was an audio engineer and my mom was a master control operator. So she would take reels of video and hand splice commercials into them wow. and then put them back in the reel, line them up and put them on the air in real time. So at the time, it was the highest paid, most stressful job at the station. It was really kind of prestigious blue collar work, I guess. Oh, that's really cool. So they met, you know, they eventually moved away from Salt Lake City where they had all their friends. Um, do this some issues. <laughs> so they show up in Denver, Colorado. They don't know anybody. And they're pretty liberal. And at that time, kind of Denver was kind of conservative. So I grew up and really didn't have any friends or peers. Like it was pretty isolating. The, the street that we moved into, you know, everybody was on their way out, so to speak. You know, the mall was dying. People on the block were old and dying, you know. So I had a lot of friends that were older than me that would die, but never anybody my age. Mm. And then because they put TV on the air, they didn't want to watch TV when they came home. So we just didn't have cable and we barely watched TV. So I had this 1960 World Book Encyclopedia. So you know, I was born in 1986, but I was reading the 1960 World Book Encyclopedia <laughs> and reading the entries like computer and computer was the size of gymnasium. You know, I was like, here's a PDP-8 and it's really fast. It can calculate like a thousand things per minute or something ridiculous. And I said that I was looking at that. Then I was looking at the Atari that my dad bought when he learned that my mom was pregnant. And I was like, hmm, this doesn't look like this. This is not the right definition for a computer. And my dad was like, you know, things change over time. I was like, oh my gosh, that means that, you know, when I grow up, these things will be like as small as your hand. And he's like, oh, I don't know. And I was like, no, it's going to be really small. Everything's going to change. What does that mean? You know, and like my parents didn't really know how to raise me. They kind of just treated me like an adult. So they, um, you know, I remember drawing a picture of some clouds, which is a bunch of scribbles. I think it was like four. And my dad was like, that's not what clouds look like. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you can't draw clouds. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, they're vapor in the air. You can hint at them with watercolor. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, he's like, let me show you how clouds work. I was like, geez, okay. I was like, but I'm four. Can I just be four? And he's like, but that's not how clouds work. 
<laughs> so it was just this this kind of thing where, you know, the minute I had hand-eye coordination, my dad was like building synthesizers and speakers and microphones, you know, in his free time. And he would be like, can you hand me that resistor? And I needed to know, you know, the resistor bands and how to solder like as fast as I could. And I built model rockets with him. That's awesome. So this was all before I went to preschool, you know? And so I show up at preschool and I'm just like, what the heck? What is this? Like, first off, I have to spend half my day in this place that I don't really want to be. And secondly, all of these kids have these references to stuff that I've never heard about, like 101 Dalmatians and like their shirts are full of these characters. And I have nothing in common with them at all. No slang, no language, no play. I don't understand what they're doing. I just haven't really hung out with them. So I hang out with my teachers, you know, and that basically happens for the rest of you know, until pretty recently, you know, I hung out with people way older than me. Mm. And it was kind of awkward because it was just pretty isolating. So, you know, when I was in school, like, you know, my grandpa was a mathematician and my uncle's a particle physicist. On my mom's side, people are kind of like artists and media people. So I did really well in math and science. We didn't have a lot of money at all. And actually we were struggling and in debt, but I did have access to some tech. And so for me, not having friends meant that a computer was my friend. And I just went mm. and, you know, eventually learned that you could build websites, you could make forums. There was this thing called PHP, which I had no clue what was, but suddenly I was installing like stuff with SQL databases. I, did, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing, but I got to run this thing. And oh no, there's like spammers. So I got to install this plugin and oh, that doesn't work. So I got to eliminate these lines of code, but I don't know what they are, but I'm just removing them. Like I had no clue what I was doing. But around high school, I ended up managing this really large forum for the time. It's like 100,000 visitors a month. Big deal. You know, everybody at school used it. And then, you know, I was like, well, what should I do? You know, and I called my mom's friend who was a math professor. I was like, you know, I want to go to Caltech, MIT. And she's like, you know, you should learn about people. Like, I know you have all these job offers right out of high school, but you should learn how to think. And you know, you should learn some difficult thing. What was your worst subject in school? And I was like, social studies. She's like, yeah, go to liberal arts college, <laughs> learn anthropology or something, you know. Hmm. Interesting. So I applied and I got into Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, and they gave me a large scholarship. And I the first time I came up, I saved some waitressing money and showed up on a Greyhound bus and just, <laughs> you know, it just showed up. And, you know, I had a variety of, you know, tech jobs early on. Like the waitressing thing was really fun. You know, for me, it was like, well, I'll try to learn about people. But before it was like building websites. And my first job was in the dot com boom at like 13, 14, making websites out of the mayor's department in Denver. So I was surprised that I could get paid to do tech because it was pretty fun. But then I went to Lewis and Clark College and I found out there's this anthropology sociology thing. And then at the end of freshman year, I found that there was a field called cyborg anthropology, which is all about human and computer interaction and how technology affects culture. Then I wrote my thesis on cell phones and that was 2007. So right when the iPhone came out and my classmates were super not into it. They're like, it's not a real anthropology if you don't go to another country. And I was like, you guys are waking up to these things that cry and you have to pick them up and soothe them back to sleep. You have to feed them and plug them into the wall. Like, don't tell me that this is not real anthropology. Your lives are going to be changed by this. And I don't care what you think, but in 10 years, you're going to care about it. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of how I got started, you know, and then somebody a couple years after I graduated, of course, I graduated in 2008 with no jobs. But people were like, you know, you really care about interfaces and you care about where buttons are and you care about humans and human computer interaction. 
you should probably do user experience design. And I got this nice job offer, you know, a year out of school that paid well, that I thought it was great at the time. It's pretty low by standard, but you know, it was the first time where I was like, wow, I can afford rent. I can buy a car. I can buy a computer. I can pay off all my student debt. Awesome. You know, and within a year, I just blasted through everything. And then I realized that user experience design was real and that was who I was kind of supposed to be. So that's kind of how I got here. That's a fascinating story, you know, because there's a couple of things that I think that really I kind of hear out of that is a lot of the guests I've been talking to recently. I think there's this underlying trend of even one of the earlier guests, Christian Mossberg, wrote this book called Sensemaking, which I ended up finding myself referring to a lot. But his whole thesis is that you bring, you know, sociology, the philosophy, the humanity side of the world together with the more the harder sciences, computer science, you know, whatever. And I think it's really fascinating how that you obviously got some really good advice to do that. Because I know when I was a math and physics major, and I mean, they would push you to, I had to kind of buck the trend to take any classes that were not engineering or math related or science related. And I think that's really great that you got advice early on to push you that direction because I don't think everybody does. I mean, what do you think? I agree. I think once you're in the STEM field, it's all STEM. You are a hundred percent tech, you know, and you can absorb into it really quickly. I mean, after I wrote my thesis, I kind of, I did a startup based on my thesis called Geoloki. And we sold that to Esri, this big global mapping company a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. But I was working 100 hour weeks, four years straight, which is possible. You know, you can have eight hours of sleep, but you just do 100%. And there's this idea that like, to be in tech, you need to be 100% in tech. But then you research some of the people that have really changed tech, and they've had a weird background. You have Stuart Butterfield, who did Flickr and Slack, was a philosophy major, (laughs) you know, like it's the different perspective that really can add something. And then you look at Xerox Park and it was technologists and anthropologists and artists inventing ethernet and inventing the graphic user interface. It took different people to push the industry forward. Hmm. So I think that you kind of get this one dimensionality if you just do tech where you can get so good at, you know, whatever is cool right now, OCaml or something, and be like, I'm a functional programmer and this is great and I can make perfect code. And then you forget that like there's more to the world because you get deep down in this hole. And then you miss out on applying it to the people that you're actually making this for. You know, oh, we'll optimize this. And it's like, no, you need to make it so that we have less support requests. (laughs) Let's build less features. And a lot of that is because we have so many resources right now that we forget that some of the best stuff was made in a very small resource world, like 80s video games. Okay, you don't have any room. Well, you have to invent sprites and then you have to have a sprite map and you have to like allocate a resource from like these coordinates and then play that over three frames and then make it look like it's moving. And wow, that's great. You know, there's just something to be said for, you know, Street Fighter. (laughs) Like, wow, like we still play that. And all the games that are based off of that kind of genre breaking animation style. So I think that's the problem is, and this is kind of why I'm glad I didn't go to MIT. Because when I was looking at all the people at MIT, and especially since I spent a couple of years there doing a fellowship these last few years, it was this, okay, this is all that life is. There's like no aesthetics, there's no music, there's no culture. And I think in the last dot-com group, there was at least some bad techno music. And there was at least some socialization. <laughs> and artists were hanging out and there was a blend. But this generation's just all tech. 
And you have a lot of people who are freaking out. They're like, what is the meaning of life? Oh, and if I don't make enough money by the age of 40, it's going to be really hard to find a job because people don't want to hire older guys. You know, guys are getting plastic surgery. You have all the artists and cultural people have moved out to Oakland and then, or you have developers who pay, you know, a couple thousand bucks to go down to South America for an ayahuasca ritual to try to recapture back the culture that they never even got to experience in the first place. Mm. And I think it's a shame because you have a bunch of people making decisions for a large chunk of the world, yet they aren't embedded in that world to begin with. And I think that's starting to break down, you know, and that's part of like the inclusivity idea is that if you're going to make stuff for a lot of people, you should have a representative group of those people that are going to use it, building it so that you're not harming people. You know, it's just kind of good design, universal design. And it's not like, a, oh, we need to represent everybody fairly. So, no, no, no. There are this many people, you know, you're making decisions for 2 billion people at Facebook. Yeah. So do you have anybody who doesn't have access to really good Wi-Fi? You know, do you have a low bandwidth option? What about people on really old phones? You know, how are you supporting people from different social classes? <laughs> you know, it's those universals that cut across more than just talking about like gender and race, you know, and people are really myopic on that because it makes social networks money, you know, to get everybody upset and divided and click on stuff and angry with each other. But what it really comes down to is let's make technology that works and is serviceable and can last for a while so that we aren't having a phone that we have to replace every year. You know, at some point, we're not going to have the resources to keep mining the cobalt and all the other stuff that we need Mm. to make those phones happen year after year after year for the entire world. There's some resource limitations that are going to happen. Plus, it's just a human rights violation to do all these things. And so when that happens, we'll have to start getting really clever again Mm. and say, how do I work with a piece of technology in my hands? And how do I make that successful for a longer period of time? And I'm hoping we might have that in the future. Like, you know, you look at traditional Japanese design, you have families making lacquerware bowls (laughs) with a, a foot powered lathe and, you know, a paint made from insects and tree sap, <laughs> you know, that you could make something that lasts for a hundred years, that's passed down from generation to generation. Wow. Can you imagine like anything that you're wearing right now or anything that you use in your house that you will have for more than 50 years yeah. or 10 years or even five years? And I'm just really interested in seeing what those things are. Yeah. Like what are the more universals that people have and the things that people go back to in the original promise of tech was to give us more time, more human time to like empower us. And now we have tech like a gas that expands to fill up all this available space. And it's not really giving us much back. Like how many people remember a Reddit binge that they went on or Hacker News? It's just little dopamine hits. But what do you really remember? You remember like falling in love, watching a sunset, getting married, having a kid. You know, these are the moments that people live for that we're kind of getting denied Mm. with just the random alerts that happen. I have the pleasure of being married to a former antique stealer. Yes, I was hoping that (laughs) you might have a house full of antiques. (laughs) It's funny. And I think that's actually, now to hear you describe that, I think that's even now that I think about it, I'm realizing how transformative that has been for my own mind. Because as a person that had a more technological engineering bent, you know, I tended to want to play with the gadgets. And my, I think my wife has always been that force pulling me back to say, I mean, she likes technology when it's useful to her, but she also finds real pleasure in physical things. And we, the bed that we've had since we've been married is like 150 years old now. There's a loss of that. I completely agree with you. 
particularly with some of the younger generation in different places. And well, you know, one thing I want to ask you when you're talking about this, particularly with what you've been doing around design. So, you know, again, partly with all the guests that I talk to and, you know, what I do day to day, it seems to me like there is something changing. Maybe this is just the way society goes in waves. You know, there is has been this like driving force, maybe even since the original dot-com boom, that technology solves all problems. And, you know, you just go build stuff and it'll all work out. But there seems to be a, you know, more of a pushback now, you know, in the last couple of years with, you know, you mentioned Facebook with everything that's been happening that, you know, technology is not always like undeniably good. You have these people, like you said, making decisions for a couple billion people, even things that are more benign about the fact that people aren't accepting and using badly designed software. They just won't deal with it. I mean, do you see a larger trend going on there that you're detecting? Is it really like kind of a sea change or is it just... What do, you, what do you think? This is, I mean, it's so standard. I mean, if you just go back to the Industrial Revolution, and it's such an easy thing to do. It's like, well, let's just go back to the last time we had a technological shift. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's really great to have the Industrial Revolution. We can get stuff for everybody made really cheap. And oh, no, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, and all the people burned. Well, let's just move that to another country. At some point, we can't move this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> We're globally connected. I mean, my favorite story is probably about this green color. It's this beautiful emerald green color that came out in the Victorian times, like you know, mid 1850s, you know, and then kind of turn of the century. And it was this just, oh my gosh, this beautiful, beautiful green that everybody wanted this green color. And it turned out that this green was made with arsenic. Oh, you heard of that. Now the problem with this arsenic green <laughs> is that shields green, right? So you know, you could make this green with this arsenic color, but people wanted it for dresses and wallpaper and things like that. And so we got the name fashion victim from, you know, woman wanting to wear green dresses and then just dying after this fancy ball. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you have, you know, men wearing these beautiful patterned green socks and then having a rash on their on their on their feet. But the problem is that you would have thought that somebody living in a place with this beautiful green wallpaper, we finally have this green color coming back, by the way, and it's not arsenic, but it's artificial. And we have beards coming back too, because beards, you know, they were a transmitter of disease. So the idea of being clean shaven was that you couldn't transmit disease. I mean, there's all these fashion trends come about often because of health issues. So beautiful green, green dresses and these things. It took like 50 years for people to say, oh, that was made with arsenic. Let's not do it. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's going to take us 50 years to say, hmm, maybe we shouldn't just make stuff and throw it away. Or like, maybe we shouldn't be dependent on this technology. I think the idea of Grace Hopper having to build, you know, COBOL was that in the military aspects of tech, you couldn't have stuff that failed. Yeah. And again, COBOL runs the world. All of this super important stuff still runs on COBOL because it was built for, you know, kind of business and government machines. Mm -hmm. You know, you want your airline to run with COBOL in the back end because you can't have a failure. Mm -hmm. Because if you do, that's hundreds of lives and people not taking your airline anymore and people being afraid to fly. They're already afraid to fly. So you have to be really careful in those situations. But now as we have tech that gets closer to us, you know, automated pet feeders and all these like super hokey things. I think the problem is that people are just like, oh, it's fine. We learn from the web that you can just have a fail whale and say, ha ha ha, Twitter is down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
But we can't do that in real life. And I think that's that transition where we had a fun time in the web where anybody could build anything. But I think we need not regulation, but maybe like licensing for the web. (laughs) Not for the web, but for reality where it's kind of like you have to be a certified electrician to be able to work on mission critical stuff. Mm. And the people making this kind of regulation should not be, oh, it's this programming language that you have to use. That makes it really brittle. There should be a general theory of how to build stuff, which I guess I'm trying to do with Calm Technology, which is just something it was come up with at Xerox Park in the 80s and 90s. It's these tech universals, like technology should use the least amount of attention and only when necessary. Who doesn't want tech that does that? You know, unless you, right, you know, right. tech should be serviceable by the people that use it. I mean, come on. Don't you want to be able to service the thing that you're using? Like when you're in a grocery store and the checkout person says, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we have to put this terminal down for maintenance. Like, no, they should be able to fix it themselves and have a pride in that. It doesn't need to be easy to fix. It could be hard to fix. And in fact, if it's hard to fix, fine. You have people with longevity and employment that know how to fix it and they can have pride in it. We forgot that piece. Like, There's all these things that we forgot that I think we can bring back from the past and say, hmm, we've gotten so far into the future that everything is so far away, we're so abstracted away, our programming is so abstracted away, that where's the joy in these things anymore? What are we doing? We're just putting people on pause. We're shifting the labor to individuals by having them book their own flights instead of going through a local travel agent or you know checking out their own items in the grocery store. There's no pride in memorizing PLUs anymore. There's no long-term employment. It's just contract work. We don't know anybody who's driving us in a car. We don't know anybody at the hotel. We randomly go to an Airbnb, but we're not really connecting with people. We're looking up Yelp to see what a good place is instead of discovering or asking people around us. Like, I think that that's what's causing some of the depression, especially in the tech community, is are we tied to anything? Is there any geography anymore? You go around mm. the world, it's all the same. You know. So I think there needs to be something where it's not that we go back in time and remove tech. It's that we have tech work as well with us as our original tools. You know, if you look at how a contractor works or a carpenter, Mm. their tools are so suited to them, to the individual, and so evolved over millions of years, really, of like hammers and, you know, reupholsterers that there's a pride and that those tools change who that person is. Mm. And there's something to be said about apprenticeship and mastering those tools. And we don't have a lot of that anymore, but I would say like, that's where you get a lot of meaning. And we are removed from being able to have that meaning if we just assume that we can automate everything and that that's going to be better for us than just learning how to work alongside tech. Tell me a little bit more about the work that you in particular are doing. You have this calm technology work that you've been doing, the book that you wrote, and you've got this new book coming out. So where are you focusing on? Do you spend time with consulting or just like going and talking about this to different communities to help educate them? And what does that look like? It's probably, I have a quarter, quarter, quarter time. So a quarter is just thinking about stuff and doing my own independent research, which I like to do it very long term. So I'm usually studying stuff that no one cares about at all. And then when I feel that people are kind of ready, I can take out and kind of beta test a talk on people. And the first time I gave the talk on Calm Technology in 2014, it was not a a highly rated talk at the conference. People didn't really like it. They said, you know, why should we worry about alerts? Like, you know, we like them. And I was like, well, in a couple of years, you might be really distracted on your phone and find yourself more in tech time and less human time. 
And they were like, we want your talk on cyborg anthropology. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm testing a new talk. And this is what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> so part of it's kind of figuring out when the time is. I'm usually about three years off. So I start to care about something three years before people start to care about it again. And of course, we go in these cycles where people care about the same stuff every 10 years and then it explodes so with the AI, my grandpa worked on AI, and then there was an AI bus. My dad worked on voice concatenation, voice-activated technology at a telecom in the 80s and 90s, and then there was a bust for that. So when I see, oh, it's voice-activated stuff in AI, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, what's, what's really going on? <laughs> what's the universal? So that's part of my research, which means that you know, I don't try to get grants because grants are always so short-term. They're like, well, we want you to do research on this very specific like, minor thing that we think is important. It's like, ah, you know, and then I'd spend all my time writing grants. So instead, you know, I give some talks and I get paid for the talks and the consulting work. So that's another quarter of the time is the talks are quarter and then the consulting work where people will say, you know, we're trying to make a smart fridge and then I talk them out of it. <laughs> or I try to tell them like, how about a sink that tells you two weeks before it's going to leak? That would be nice. Mm. You know, isn't that better than a fridge that tells you that your bananas have gone bad because the pill on the banana tells you when it's gone bad, you know? Mm. Then another quarter of the time is writing, just taking a lot of notes. And there are just these long, you know, I was reading this article, I guess it was New York Times Magazine. There's this poet and she writes a book of poetry every decade, mm. <laughs> you know? And after she finishes one, she's like, oh, I don't know if I'll ever write again. She's like 70 now. Of course, another decade rolls around and she's written another book. Like, I want to be like that. You know, there's something to be said for this really slow, long-term stuff. You're writing about unchanging things that are core mm. for a thousand years. How do we make tech like that? <laughs> you know, because we are alongside it every single day, yeah. you know, surveying and, you know, and sidewalks and bricks and, you know, houses. Like, we are interfacing with this and plumbing, you know. We are interfacing with this every day and it's kind of how we work. And then also, how do we disrupt those things too? It's like, are toilets even reasonable? Like, can we have better ones? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the stuff that people ignore, like the hairdryer, when a company like Dyson comes in and says, we're going to make a quiet one, yeah. that's a game changer. And there's all these mundane things around that people are ignoring because they think they're going to make the next best social network. We don't even need social networks. <laughs> we have email, we have text. We're going back to these smaller networks anyway. So I guess, you know, that's the kind of time that I spend. And I don't really do any outreach. Like I just, I get emails like a couple times a week saying, hey, come speak or hey, we need your advice or like, hey, do some consulting or hey, we want to learn about, you know, VR, AR. And I'll be like, okay, I have 10 years of research that I haven't done anything with. Because, <laughs> you know, here you go. Like here's an overview of, you know, the last 20 years. People in tech are so unfocused on the history and how repetitive it is, that they forget that most of the research has already been done. Yeah. And if you just go back and read some of the journal articles, you can save yourself, you know, three million or ten million dollars in like a couple of years of trying to build something because you can say, ah, I need to release this product at this part of the market. And that's kind of how I timed my startup. I was like, okay, location based stuff is dead from this generation, but it's going to come up when the iPhone gets a GPS chip in it. And so I think we were one of the first GPS enabled apps on the iPhone when the GPS chip came out. Oh, really? Yeah, because we were so late for the old GPS era that we hopped on the new GPS era <laughs> and we kind of knew what was going to happen and how long it would take for the market to consolidate. And so we could just 
you just time it. Like at this point, you just know in every single tech cycle, like here's how long AI is going to last and here's the good AI stuff and here's the bad AI stuff. All you have to do is look up 10 years ago what AI companies worked and what AI companies didn't and just recreate the AI company that worked, you know, 10 years ago. And it's the exact same thing, you know, with the magic leap, like it's super obvious that that will die a painful, awful, slow death because there was a company think 20 years ago that did the same thing with the same demos, you know, with the cube in the hand, they got, I think, $200 million in funding and never could create anything. And there's these universals of why you can never make a company like that and why people don't need augmented reality in a headset. They need projected interfaces. So yeah, it's been interesting, but a lot of times people don't want to hear about that sort of thing. So I just keep it quiet. I figure in a few years I can talk about it. (laughs) That makes sense. And so with your thought process now, what are those things that you're, I don't know, you're beta testing, even your alpha testing right now in your thought process? What do you think are the topics that might be emerging over the next few years that maybe not everybody's paying attention to? The exact opposite of what everybody's paying attention to. (laughs) Attention, alerts, Mm. different senses, sonification, good sonification. You always have to pair somebody up with, with a composer, art, ethics, all of the things that we trashed because we thought, oh, we don't need that anymore. Tech will just solve everything. We will have to put all of that back in. So art, music, design, culture, language, weird spaces, the ability to actually be an individual, local stuff, local food, local art, the cult of the amateur, apprenticeships, you know, craftsmanship, um, <laughs> the long term, poetry. Right. <laughs> you know, human time, not machine time. You know, we'll wake up from this kind of industrial revolution induced thing and say, ah, what did we throw away? Okay, now we have crushing anxiety, debt, depression, mental health that doesn't exactly get at the thing. A lot of people just take arbitrary medications and a lot of tech workers, you know, you know, all these tech workers that they can make enough money and they just buy a farm (laughs) somewhere in California. What do you do as a retired tech person when you retire at 45 or you don't make it into management like, or you're successful? You get a farm, you open a club like DNA Lounge, you uh, maybe open a record store, you spend time in some other countries. Like, There's not really a lot in the future for people or you change industries entirely. So I think we're going to have to deal with all the human elements that we left behind. And we're going to say, when you have automation, the most important thing is customer service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Surprise, surprise. Yeah, right? So I think we've just gone so myopic into one thing, yeah. like humans usually do, that we'll have to come out the other end and say, okay, how do we blend back in and have some reality. And, you know, we're going to have a thing where the population kind of stabilizes, maybe even goes negative after a while. And so then we'll have to deal with that where, you know, everybody's atomized. You know, people aren't living with their grandparents and parents and kids. Mm-hmm. You used to have it like a big house where there's grandparents taking care of the kids. And then you have like the adults go out and make money, or maybe one of them goes out and makes money. Now everybody is trying to make money. And like the kids are trying to go to Ivy League schools and are all stressed out and don't get to have a childhood. The adults are so busy that they can't even spend time with their kids. So their kids end up on phones and nobody's real fault. Then you have grandparents who can't retire because they have to support their adult children and their aging parents. And then they're freaking out. Mm. It's like, how much life are people living? And we have to allow people to live some life or what's the point? At some point, we can't make as much money off of them if they're sick and tired and hungry and upset. They'll quit. They won't respect the organizations that employ them. And so once that turning point hits, 
we're going to have to go super human, human, human. And I think we're seeing that with companies like IKEA, where they've realized, I think they use like three or 4% of the world's forests at this point. And they've realized that they have to plant forests (laughs) so that they can... Replenish. (laughs) Yeah. And so we'll have to find companies that do that. And then they also realize like if you give people flexible time, you might have an employee for a longer time. Yeah. It's so expensive to employ and retrain somebody over time. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, our ideas of efficiency aren't that great. Yeah. Efficiency involves sometimes being fairly slow and sometimes sinking into things and sometimes just having more human time so that we can do things better from the beginning. And I think this all goes back to, I was at the school that still had shop class and still had architecture drafting class. Yeah. A couple of years later, they canceled all of them, but I got to do shop. You know, I got to make CO2 race cars and chess boards and use all these power tools. And I was trusted with them. Yeah. And we learned, you know, it was really special. We had World War II veterans as teachers. Oh, wow. And like people had been in wars, I guess. We had these amazing yeah. teachers who were you know, old and cranky, but so precise. Yeah. And there's something to be said for an era in which you must be precise and you must get it right the first time. And so you're planning. Yeah, I was lucky because I had this drafting teacher that said, oh, I really want you to do this right on the first try. And I said, I don't think that's really possible. And he said, look, you just need to plan it out and Mm. understand what you're doing before you do it and do a few draft images. And then you'll be able to do it right when you finally do it because you'll fully understand it. And so over the course of the semester, I was able to just draw it out and it was really good. I was able to do a perfect render. And then we had a kind of a tech company, defense company, <laughs> Lockheed Martin started to fund our school. <laughs> we were kind of an inner city school. They funded a wing to be built on the school. So the next year, I ended up going into the air-conditioned classroom with all these top-notch computers and 3D printers. And I got to be part of the STEM program. And we used Autodesk Inventor and AutoCAD. And I was able to do in like three clicks what it took me like a half an hour to render on a piece of paper with, you know, square. Yeah. There was this one point where I just sat in front of my computer super depressed. And I was trying to figure out why. And I realized that because we were all so quick at this in class, we weren't thinking it fully through. We were introducing so many more errors. Mm. And it was taking us longer to do a render than if we had just thought up front about it and then drawn it ourselves. Yeah, that's interesting. We had this sense of this loss of this craft and this connection to our work and a connection to, you know, a potential client and this ritual around it. And it was sad, you know, and then we were all offered jobs at Lockheed Martin afterwards, <laughs> which, you know, I went to college instead and didn't do because I was kind of sad about that digital aspect. I said, you know, if I had done this like no. in the 70s or 60s or in the era where you had to be really precise, you know, and maybe there was some pride in fighting a war or something like that. Not to say that war is good. It's terrible. But there was a period of time in which we had limited resources and we had to be really good about what we did. I think I've told the story to somebody else, but I get I mean, always fascinated by the ingenuity, the way you're talking about limited resources. And I always admired my grandfather who was a high-speed photographer. And I told this to another guest that he passed away recently, but a couple of years ago, he would always tell me these stories. And he made his first like high-speed photography setup by taking a vacuum cleaner motor and hooking it up to the shutter on his camera. Yes. And it worked. And it worked great. And he used to always tell me these stories about, you know, working with scientists that were smart but couldn't connect the dots. Because I completely agree with you. And when I went to grad school, my favorite class in grad school, hands down, was the machine shop class because they let me go. And I was working with these like three quarter inch drills. And I mean, there was one time where I made a mistake and it almost killed me because the drill broke and like lodged in the wall behind me. 
But that physical connection yeah. was was amazing. And I actually miss that. I, at least I find, and I think a lot of people in, you know, kind of our general industry find this is that, you know, I garden, play music, and all these things are because they're physical. Because you need that, you need that physicality. You need to do things with your hands. It's calming. It actually helps you think through the process. We absolutely can lose that. And I think you're definitely onto something there. I think the stuff you're working on, I mean, I can definitely see after this conversation, we're going to have to have you back again sometime in order to see what else you've been working on and thinking about, because I think the work you're doing is absolutely essential. It's really important to kind of break through that fog, I think, surrounding the technology industry in particular about what we think is good for the rest of the world. I think what you're bringing to the table is really good for breaking through those impasses. So I appreciate you taking time to come on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, I hope we have a world in which we're given a little bit more responsibility so that we can be more attached to the stuff that we do. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And everybody listening, make sure to check out her book. She's got a book called Calm Technology, which is out now. And probably by the time you're listening to this, her new book, Designing with Sound, will be out as well on December 13th. So check those out. She's got a lot of great stuff online. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And check us out the next time on your favorite iTunes, your favorite podcast app. And thank you for listening. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.